You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. California Surgeon General Nadine Burke-Harris joins the Post to discuss how the vaccine rollout highlights longstanding racial inequities in healthcare, the impact of the pandemic on children's mental health, and the path forward as California confronts new variants of the virus. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Eugene Scott, political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post, and I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. She's the first Surgeon General of California appointed to that post by Governor Newsom. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Dr. Burke-Harris. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So there is uh, quite a bit to talk about, especially uh, related to where we currently are uh, in terms of this pandemic that has just really changed life as we know it. And looking forward to hearing your thoughts on so many of the issues that our listeners and readers are concerned about most. And I want to start first with focusing on California, which had uh, arguably the worst COVID-19 outbreak in the country this past winter. But now things are looking better and positivity rates are declining. Uh, The vaccine rollout is moving along, but mutations are also spreading. And so what is your outlook for California as we head into the spring? I think California's outlook is really strong. So what we've seen is that yes, our uh, uh, rates, case rates have come down. Something that we use to uh, look at the rate of spread, something called R effective, which is the you know the average number of other people each infected person infects. So if it's over one, uh, that means that the the pandemic is expanding. That has come down quite a bit. So now it's at 0.65 is the latest calculation today in California, and um, and. Uh, you are right when it comes to our vaccine rollout. We uh, started off with a bit of a bumpy start, and then uh, Governor Newsom really, um, really challenged us to do better. And what we saw was that California has rapidly ramped up our vaccine distribution and has gone from, you know, not doing so hot in terms of our rate of vaccines that we're getting out there to now really leading the pack in terms of number of vaccines uh, that are administered each day. So, you know, this is a really challenging, difficult um, task, right? Uh, But what we uh, hope to be doing is really learning forward. And that's what we all, all of us across the Newsom administration are committed to doing every day is learning forward and bringing the best uh, that we can possibly do for the California public. Speaking of Governor Newsom, I know that part of uh, your responsibility is to advise him on the topic of school reopenings, which is a subject that so many people uh, that are engaging us are really concerned about. What what metri- metrics and perhaps safety measures do you think need to be in place that need to be met for schools to safely reopen? Well, what we have seen, what we've done here in California is that we've made huge investments in ensuring that uh, teachers and educational systems have access to PPE, they have access to the resources they uh, need to have a safe reopening. Um, And, you know, as you know, my background is as a pediatrician and uh, especially with a, a lot of research on the impacts of uh, you know, stress and adversity on kids. 
Of course, we know that a lot of kids are experiencing uh, a real challenge with this pandemic. We know that kids who are in vulnerable communities and disproportionately low-income kids and kids of color are having greater challenges, greater difficulty with distance learning, accessing uh, you know, online resources during this pandemic. So it's a real urgent priority for Governor Newsom to ensure that our kids can get back to school as quickly as is safely possible. And that means safely for our kids and safely for our educators. And that's what's at top of mind for the administration. And so th those are really what we are looking into is looking at how do we make sure that our educators have the resources to safely and quickly reopen our schools? Do you have any idea of a timeline for school reopenings or and whether or not teachers will have to be vaccinated uh, before schools reopen? That's way above my pay grade, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. Oh, if I, honestly, I promise you, if I would, listen, I got four kids uh, who are doing distance learning. So if I, uh, if I had more influence over the process, there might be fewer kids at my house right now. Well, do, do you have any thoughts on whether or not, uh, you know, we should go back to full uh, attendance or some type of hybrid option? Like how, how many days should students at this stage be in school? Honestly, I'm going to say that is such a, uh, a complicated and nuanced issue that I know that they, the administration is deep in conversation with uh, educational leadership across California. So I would be, uh, you know, remiss to be inserting anything outside of that process, other than to say that, you know, my role as Surgeon General is to advise the governor both on uh, the, the developmental needs of children and, um, but then also, you know, the safety and, you know, what's necessary to do this safely. Okay. Well, one thing I do want to talk to you about because you have advised on this area is uh, racial disparities regarding rollout and vaccine shortages. And how, how do you think California uh, can do a better job of prioritizing at-risk minority groups for vaccinations? So this has been something that I have been passionately committed to in this process. And there is a lot that we... Uh, are doing and I think even more that we can do. So when we look at um, what we are doing, so one of the key pieces is allocation. We recognize that low-income communities, communities of color are at greater, are experience greater case rates and at greater risk of uh, hospitalization and death. And one of the measures that we use in California is something called the Healthy Places Index is a measure of the type of resources that communities need to keep themselves healthy. Uh, it looks at things like housing density, access to uh, transportation, access to safe places to play and healthy foods to eat, and even the density of healthcare resources in the community. And what we know is that, you know, because of the, the history of de facto and de jure segregation in the United States, that these resources are not 
evenly allocated, right? So when we talk about under-resourced communities, we're talking about communities that have fewer of these resources to keep themselves healthy. For our communities in California that are in the lowest quartile of the Healthy Places Index, the, the, the rate of disease and death is far greater. So the, the bottom 25% in terms of Healthy Places Index experiences 37% of our COVID cases and 37% of deaths. Well, what does that tell us? That means that we need to be allocating more vaccine to those communities so that we can prevent this disproportionate rate of disease and death. But we also know that simply putting vaccines alone in these communities is not going to do the job. We need to overcome some of the mistrust, right, with by partnering with trusted messengers. And so in California, we, you know, we just, uh, our Department of Social Services just administered $17.3 million in grants to community-based organizations to be a partner to help get folks uh, who, who are trusted messengers to be out there doing that outreach in the community to help connect folks to vaccinations. Uh, but in addition, we recognize that uh, there are a lot of crazy myths out there that we have to debunk, right? Folks have uh, all kinds of their, their, I won't repeat them so as not to give them more airtime, but there are lots of myths out there that it's important for us to set straight. So public education, we are doing public education in dozens of languages here in California to make sure that we re reach our diver diverse population. And the, the, the other uh, couple of things are that we need to track the data, right? So uh, a week ago, we released our data looking at our vaccination rates by race and ethnicity, and we have a long way to go. But it starts with tracking the data and then having metrics around equity and making sure that we're doing a good job vaccinating all Californians and holding ourselves accountable. And so part of that is California has moved to a third-party administrator where we are able to embed equity into our contract that our third-party administrator has to deliver. And we will do pay for performance. We will do, uh, you know, use the tools of contracting to drive to the outcomes that we are seeking, which uh, includes, and, you know, it's central to that, our, our equity outcomes. So you got to something earlier that I want to bring uh, more attention to, and uh, it's related to a report that came out earlier this week um, that talks about the life expectancy uh, in the U.S. falling by one year uh, in the first half of 2020. And, and specifically, we know that the life expectancy gap uh, between whites and blacks, uh, which, which had been narrowing, is now uh, at, at six years, I believe. And that's the widest it's been since 1998. And, and the thought, of course, is that the pandemic played a big factor in that. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how we can turn that around. Yeah, so the, the life expectancy uh, in the U.S. declined by a year. For African-Americans, it declined by 2.7 years. Right, so we see that the impact on life expectancy was not the same across racial and ethnic groups. For Latinos, I believe it was 
I, I believe it was around uh, 1.8 years, but I'm not, I, you, I would have to double confirm. But again, we see this disproportionate um, impact. And so, yes, we have a lot of work to do. And uh, part of that is ensuring uh, access to timely care, making sure that we're doing all of the things that I talked about in terms of uh, making sure that our communities are vaccinated, right? So we see that this decline in life expectancy is due to the COVID pandemic. In part, it's because of the excess deaths due to COVID. But in another part, what we see is that excess deaths overall are uh, increasing because there are many folks who are more hesitant to reach out or you know, go to the doctor or go to uh, seek healthcare. And that's one of the pieces that has been key uh, here in California is communicating to the public, hey, if you have high blood pressure, if you have diabetes, if you have a heart condition, if you have chronic lung disease, do not delay your regular care. Please continue to be accessing that care. And uh, when it comes to COVID, get tested. The earlier you get tested, right? The earlier we detect it, the better outcomes are. And we have to make sure that all of our communities, we do have, um, we do have this the vaccine that is now arriving into our communities, but uh, we are not out of the woods yet. And so we still have to continue practicing the things that we know work, which include wearing a mask, watching our distance, washing our hands, waiting to gather. And then of course, when it's our turn, going ahead and taking that vaccine. We talked a bit about children earlier, um, and we, we know you're an expert in childhood trauma. Um, and this has been a very traumatic time this past year. So can you talk a bit about the mental health impact uh, this pandemic has had on children, you know, social social isolation, school closures, fears about the virus death, like like what what is happening that I don't think a lot of us really are as attentive to as we could be with our youth. So I want to um, emphasize that. Uh, so, yes, this has been an incredibly challenging time, both for children and for adults, so for all of us. But um, I, the what we recognize is that because children's brains and bodies are just developing, the impact of the adversity and the trauma that they are experiencing, uh, potentially experiencing as a result of the pandemic, has an outsized effect on their development. It actually can impact brain development and actually increase the risk uh, for long-term, uh, not only mental health, but also um, physical health conditions. And this is something that I, I just released a report, my office just released a report called Roadmap for Resilience. And it really focuses on how we as a society can take a cross-sector approach to ensuring that we are taking a public health approach for our kids' health and well-being, right? And so that includes not only the work that we can do in the healthcare sector. In California, we're the first state in the nation to be screening for adverse childhood experiences, things like abuse or neglect or uh, have, you know, having a parent who is mentally ill or substance dependent. 
And all of these things we know are increasing during the pandemic. And what the data tells us is that early detection and early intervention improves outcomes. And what we laid out in the California Surgeon General's report uh, for ACEs and toxic stress is that, is that uh, we really need to take this cross-sector approach. So there is work that our, our educators can do, our healthcare providers can do, our, our legal and our court system can do, that all of us can do as part of a, a really trauma-informed approach to supporting this generation. So I want to take this time to ask an audience question. We've got one from Charlene Tilson from Arizona. And she writes wondering, uh, how do you talk to kids under five about their fear about this pandemic? Great question, Charlene. I can tell you what I told my uh, uh, four-year-old at the time, um, which is one of the things that's really important is to be um, truthful and just and uh, very straightforward, but of course using developmentally appropriate language. So in explaining to uh, my little one about the COVID pandemic, explaining that, you know, there's this new uh, virus and it's a germ and it can make, make us sick. And it's really important that we wash our hands really carefully and that we put on our masks and that we stay six feet away. And one of the things that we did was we made a game out of it. So we said, okay, how far is six feet? Is it the length of the hammock? Is it from that chair to that chair? And uh, my kids were coronavirus superheroes, right? So our boys, um, they got a chance to be coronavirus superheroes. And they, when they put on their masks, um, they're, they're ninjas, right? They're, they're coronavirus fighting ninjas. And literally they'll put on the mask, they'll put on their hoodie and they'll go out and like try to karate chop. Um, but it's really about presenting in a in, in a way that's truthful, um, but that can also find a way that kids can can make meaning out of what's happening and um, and uh, be empowered, right? Be empowered with what they can do to help fight the coronavirus. Great. Well, my last question. Uh... It's, it's related to mental health, something you care a lot about. Would you support uh, Biden appointing a mental health czar? Do you think that's something we need right now? Oh, my goodness. What a great question. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, unreservedly, yes. I think that um, we definitely need um, a, a big focus on our mental and emotional well-being. I think mental health, I think what we're seeing with the pandemic is that for 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 most of us, and you know whether or not we ha there's a diagnosable mental health condition, we are really feeling that stress, that isolation uh, from this pandemic. It is an incredibly stressful time, and so uh, I would love to see a mental health czar. I would love to see someone who prioritizes preventive mental health, right? So not just being reactive but also looking at how we are uh, approaching mental health from a prevention framework. That would be fantastic. 
Well, it has been fantastic talking to you. We've got so many more questions, but unfortunately not enough time. And so we're gonna have to leave things there, but thank you, uh, Dr. Burke Harris, for coming on Post Live to speak with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great, great. And make sure that you come back and join us Monday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're gonna hear from the CEO and president of Ariel Investments, Melody Hobson. I'm Eugene Scott. Thanks for watching. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage.